Good morning. Over the last few years, LaDonna and I have tried to become a one-car family. In this journey, there's a scenario that has happened, okay, more than once. I'm at the office working, and she has the car, and for whatever reason, it won't work for me to walk home. Tight schedule, maybe, or maybe we've made some plans to go somewhere. Bad weather. Maybe just I'm feeling wussy. And we agree that I will be ready for her to pick me up at approximately five o'clock-ish. And she says, okay, I'll work toward that. Just call me when you're ready. Simple, straightforward. So at five o'clock-ish, I call and say, I'm ready. Usually I add any time. And she says, great, I'm on my way. I'm what? I'm on my way. Now, I trust my wife totally. So when she says, I'm on my way, I, I believe her. She is on her way. And so in the cold of the winter or maybe the cold rain of spring or the sweltering heat of summer, I quickly get my stuff together, go out on the street so she doesn't have to wait for me when she gets there, which, okay, it's happened. It's a one and a half minute to two minute drive from our house to the church. So I have to move quickly if I'm going to get there so she doesn't have to wait. I make it and I wait. Getting wetter and colder or wetter and hotter. I mean, sweating from the sun, right? I have three options. Number one, I can go back inside but it's a long way back across the parking lot and, and she's on her way. Number two, I, I can just stand there. But for how long? And okay, standing just doesn't seem to be an option for me. Number three, I can start walking home. Do you know how far I've gotten while she's on her way? She finally arrives and in as calm a voice as I can muster at the time, I say, I thought you said you were on your way. And her answer was, I was on my way. We explore that for a minute, and I discover that my understanding of on my way and her understanding of on my way are two different things. My understanding is she has her shoes on, keys in hand. She's reaching for her coat in the closet as we speak and is out the door. She is on her way. Isn't that what you think? Do you know what her understanding of on my way is? It's, okay, I'll wrap up what I'm doing and I'll get into the shower. <laughs> Seriously, well, that only happened once, but what on my way means to her is I will start pointing in that direction. I'm trying hard to learn to ask the question when she says I'm on my way, uh, what does on my way mean this time? Because if I know what it means, it's no problem. I can live with it. I can do something productive rather than pacing. If I know what on my way means, even I can wait well. Sometimes, especially if I'm a bit tired and a string of things haven't come together like I thought they should, <laughs> as I wait, I begin to wonder, where do I really fit into her plans and her priorities? On my way becomes a test to see how much she really cares about me. 
There have been occasions when she has been aware of my weariness and sensed my downheartedness, and, and she's decided to do something special for me. Maybe, maybe have supper ready, a favorite. She's quit her work early to do it, and when I call, she wants to quickly tidy up the kitchen so it looks overwhelmingly welcoming when I come home. The fact that she doesn't show up according to my time frame is not an indication she is not thinking about me. It may be an indication she is thinking about me a lot and lovingly so. So what does that have to do with the book of Revelation that we are studying? Well, everything. How does the book begin? John is isolated, exiled on Patmos. Things have definitely not been going his way, nor the way the people of Jesus he's been leading thought they'd go. And they are beginning to wonder, where do we fit into this picture? Is this really all worth it? And John is given this revelation, which means unveiling, eye-opening vision of Jesus, which begins with Jesus saying what? Chapter 1, verse 7. I am coming quickly, which means both suddenly, you won't have time, time to prepare, and it means soon. It doesn't say he will come. It says he is coming. He is on his way. The book ends, chapter 22, with Jesus himself making that statement three times. Look, look, I am on my way. And in between those two bookends, we have this this explanation of what it means. He really is on his way already. In this book, we have pictures of, of where and how we fit into the picture in his mind and in his plan. As we get into the, into the guts of the book, we might be saying, okay, I get the dream of God restoring things to the way they're supposed to be. Something in me resonates with, longs for a time when those who acknowledge God and surrender to Jesus will stand there pumped and give that grand victory cheer that we read last week in chapter 11. The kingdoms of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And most of us can can get our heads around the idea that to get to that place, some kind of, of judgment will have to happen. And chapter, in, chapter 11 ends with this perspective of God's judgment that is, that is pretty stark. But, but I think most of us could get our heads around it as being valid. Chapter 11, verse 18. The time has come for judging, which towards the end of the verse means destroying those who destroy the earth. In order for creation to be renewed, restored, in order for things to be made right, you can't just treat the symptoms, do a surface cleanup job. You have to address the root cause. The destroyer has to be neutralized, right? Does that not make sense? Is that not what we want? In order to get to the vision of Revelation 4, 
with all of the thrones and kingdoms and authorities, which includes me and my desire to be my own kingdom, all kingdoms centered around the throne, living under the throne, what has to be destroyed is the destroyer of that order. The destroyers, but ultimately the capital D destroyer, the one behind it all. What we see in the book is that God is moving there with patience. On my way does mean on my way. As the one who was on the throne, he first allows humanity to experience the consequences of their choices. We might call that passive judgment. We saw that in chapter 6 as he begins to open the seals. And, and at the same time, it moves to a point of definite reckoning. But at, the, at some point, as we go through these cycles of seals and trumpets and then next time bowls, at some point the question becomes, what about me now? I'm tired of hearing what it's going to be like someday. What about now? It's beginning to feel like I am becoming a civilian casualty in this big war. And God seems to be just okay with that. You ever thought that? I have. That's where Jesus takes us and takes John in chapter 12 in this book. The unveiling of Jesus. Chapter 11 ends with this grand vision of justice being accomplished, decisive, once for all, destroying of the destroyer so the dream can be reality. And immediately, immediately, the next statement is, chapter 11, verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. This transition into chapter 12 calls us back to where? To chapter 4, verse 1, that grand vision of heaven, the behind-the-scenes reality of the throne that has occupied the God who was in control, chapter 4, and then chapter 5, zooming in on that throne where John sees a sacrificed, standing lamb with the scroll of the will of God in his hands, ready to pull it off. How did that vision begin? Chapter 4, verse 1. I looked. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. Open. That's a, that's a key structural marker in the book. Look, which is actually later in this chapter, and behold. So how is this vision of chapter 12 introduced? Then God's temple in heaven opened. And what do we see? Well, the lens zooms in one more time a little closer. Is it Behind the throne? Is it inside the throne? Is it under the throne? We're not, we're not sure, but it's closer to the center of it all, to the place that is the, the interface between heaven and earth. That's, that's what the Ark of the Covenant was. This is like Indiana Jones, eat your heart out. The Ark of the Covenant, the piece of furniture that was the most sacred piece in the Old Testament system. Nobody could look into it was the symbol of the presence of God with the people of God. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of the place where heaven and earth meet. A new window, a closer look now, not a view of heaven, but a view from the heart of heaven into earth. That's what we see in chapter 12. When we were talking about chapter 4 and 5, I said that if I could only have two pages of the Bible 
to go with me for the rest of my life would be the page with those two chapters, the vision, uh, chapters four and five, the, the, the vision of how everything was created to be and someday will be. Well, I need to add an addendum to that. I think there would be room on those two pages for one more chapter, chapter 12. This is actually my favorite chapter in the book. I could live in this room of the art gallery for the rest of my life. I, I could live. I hope this is the room I am learning to live in while he is on his way. Will you join me? You've got to turn to chapter 12. Turn in your Bibles and follow along and keep this page open for the rest of our teaching this morning. What does John see as he gets to look into the center and from the center of heaven? What it means on earth for me when Jesus says, I am on my way? Well, he sees three people, just three, and he sees a place. The only three people and the key place I need to come to terms with to wait well as he is on his way. This chapter answers two questions. Number one, how do I fit into the picture now, into his picture, into his mind while he is on his way? Number two, how can I live in the big vision? How can I become hostage, pulled forward by hope when he is on his way, makes me feel like I'm being ignored, forgotten, or even a civilian casualty. Look at the first six verses of Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Three people, well, three living beings, two are people, a woman, a dragon, and a child. Those are the only three people we need to think about to wait well. You know, we, we make things so complex, don't we? Sometimes we need someone to sit us down and say, okay, let, let's just make it simple. A woman, a dragon, and a child. If you know the story, your story, if you have chosen to follow Jesus, is there anything about those three that ring a bell with you? A woman, a dragon, and a child. This vision takes us back, all the way back, to the core problem and the great promise of God in the garden when it all came apart. When humanity decided we wanted to be the center, not be centered around God as the center. We wanted to be God and not simply be like God. We wanted to be the throne and not a throne around the throne. God stepped in and said, God stepped in and he said, okay, have it your way. You have just complicated the picture. You have no idea by how much. You have allowed the evil one, the serpent, the deceiver to come in and confuse things for you. 
That was the original judgment of God. It's okay. Have it your way. Passive judgment. But, but, that judgment did not come without mercy and without grace. It came with a promise. God tells the serpent, the serpent who is the one who was cursed first, that one day another woman will deliver a child. A child that, well, here's God's curse on the evil one. Listen. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Some offspring of this woman, a child, will enter the scene. Here in, chapter, in Revelation chapter 12, what do we have? We have a woman, the dragon, and finally, the child. We have the view from heaven on how that original promise is being, being played out. Who's the dragon? Well, that's easy. It's the evil one. It's the serpent from the garden, the devil. He's a sign, a symbol, a word picture is what this means. He's not literally a dragon. Oh, it's one of the powerful word pictures to describe him. Who's this child? He's not a sign. The woman is a sign. The dragon's a sign. The child, he is the real child. It's Jesus, the promised seed of the woman who has become the lamb on the throne, who on his cross, which was as God told him when it all fell apart, was Satan bruising his head, but was actually God crushing Satan's head. Uh, Satan bruising the child's heel, but God crushing Satan's head because it was the death that defeated death, the ultimate defeat. But who's this woman? Well, most obviously the woman is Mary, the one who gave birth to the child. But, but the woman is a sign, a symbol. And as we read later in the chapter, we realize that this woman includes everyone who is a follower of Jesus. All of the people who have become God's people. This woman is you. It's me. And where does the woman fit in this picture? Right up front. The first thing is this woman, which means in this vision, I see where it is I fit into the picture. Now, while he's on his way, Jesus' delay is not because he has become distracted by his own issues. It's not because he's forgotten about me. It's not that he doesn't care about me. Not because he has more important, bigger fish to fry. Like I'm a nobody in his mind, it's actually quite the opposite. Look at what this vision says about me, about the woman. Look at it. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. I don't know what you think when you hear that description of you, but I know what John and his first readers hear. This picture is a paraphrase from a line in the Bible's book of romantic love, the Song of Songs, a love poem in the Old Testament that describes the beauty of true romance. Some suggest that it was the, it was the sex education manual for Jewish young men. It's graphic and it's powerfully beautiful. It goes back and forth in, in this poem between these, the, these two lovers with romantic 
sexy things the man and woman whisper in each other's ears, describing each other's loveliness and what they're about to experience physically and emotionally in each other. And every once in a while, there's, there's, a, there's an insert. It, it's, it's what other people are saying as they see these two lovers together. And, and most often, these inserts by other people are, are comments about her. Listen to Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 10. Who is, who is this woman? Like, where did he find her? She is as fresh and glorious as morning light, as intriguing and full of mystery as the moon, as bright as the sun, as awe-inspiring as the stars in procession. This is the woman that turns everyone's head as she walks into the room, that makes every other woman jealous, wondering what her man is thinking as he sees her. She has everything together. This woman is the full package. And as John describes this woman, he sees in Revelation 12, he's bringing back this vision of the Song of Songs. What's he saying? Who is she? This woman is you. In Revelation chapter 1, he says she's like a bride on her wedding night. Did I say Revelation 1? Revelation 21. She is like a bride on her wedding night. That's you. Here's what Jesus is saying to us in the middle of the battle, at the heart of the low times, the times when we think nobody is thinking about us, when, when all we're reading in the book now is about judgment. This is what Jesus is saying. This is who you are. While I am on my way, I am thinking about you. It's you I'm on the way for, and I am getting ready for you. And in the context of this vision, Jesus is also saying, remember, I am not the only one who is fighting over you, but, but I am the only one who has died for you, the only one who can truly bring you home, and I am on my way. You see, when John is given this vision, everyone is looking at the church of Jesus and saying, how weak, how pathetic, how pitiful. But Jesus is saying, I wish you could see yourself as I see you. I wish you could feel how I feel about you. You are dazzlingly beautiful, invincibly powerful, and you are gloriously regal. Won't you get your image of yourself from how I see you? Let's stop right there and ask ourselves, what would happen if I saw myself as that woman. If I saw how stunningly beautiful I am in Jesus' eyes, would I get so jealous when others get attention? If I saw the regal status I have in him, would I always feel like I need to be more validated? If I realized the royal birthright I have through his death, would I always be chasing after more? I don't need any more. I've already won the lottery. Is that you? I hope it is. Let's move on. This, this woman, 
The literal woman, Mary, is pregnant with child. She's about to give birth to the one God promised. By the way, as we said several years ago, this story is the Christmas story from the heavenly perspective. The Gospels give the Christmas story from the, from the phenomenological perspective, the human perspective. Revelation 12 is the Christmas story from the heavenly perspective. And what we see is that, well, we see, as, as Eugene Peterson says, Jesus' birth arouses more than wonder. Jesus' birth stirs up evil. Why? Because evil knows the promise. It knows what Jesus' entrance into the scene means for evil. We're going to come back to that later. And what else does it say about this child? Verse 5. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Doesn't say too much about everything that happened during the life of Jesus and his death. Born, snatch up to God and his throne. Hold it. Didn't we just skip a few important steps here? He was born. He taught. He did miracles. He died. He rose again. Why jump from birth to ascension? Well, Jesus gave the answer to that when he was on trial before Pilate, who, although he didn't realize it, was in cahoots with the evil one and trying to get him off the scene. In John chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus said, you've correctly said, I'm a king. For this, I have been born. There we are, born, made king. Why, why jump from birth to enthronement? Because that's the point. Born into the world to be the king of the world, as Daryl Johnson says. And Jesus' entrance into the world sparks a war in heaven, over earth. Look at verse 7. The war broke out in, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they, the dragon and his angels, they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the world astray. He was hurled, uh uh-oh, to the earth and his angels with him. What happens? Satan is booted out of heaven. Remember, This is where he started as an angel, but he's out of there. Done. We'll see one of the huge implications of that for us in a minute. But but first, a a question that is is sort of a surface question that that we want to answer. When does this happen? Well, this this is an outside of time perspective. This is actually a big theme in the book of Revelation. Six times in this passage and three separate times in the book, Satan is thrown, hurled down away from God's presence. First to the earth, then to the abyss, and then finally gone to the lake of fire. There's another one of those great worship scenes around the throne, which we'll get into in a minute, but, but remember where he is hurled in this vision, to the earth, which means he is ticked. And who's he going to take it out on? On the woman. You and me. Those who follow Jesus. Look at verse down to the end of the chapter. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half time out of the serpent's reach. Then From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But 
The earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged that the woman went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Rather than get into a lot of technical details about this passage, let's simply come back to, to the big three. The woman, the dragon, the child. And see how it answers that second question. How do I live in the vision? How, do, how can I become hostage by hope while I'm waiting, knowing he is on his way? Three things this vision tells me about how I get to view. Number one, it, it tells me how I get to view everything. Everything that I feel is against me. All my pains, all my hurts, all my problems, all my challenges. Sometimes someone will come to me and say, you know, I need you to pray for me. I, I think I'm in a real spiritual battle right now. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful and honored to do that. But the truth is everything, everything is a spiritual battle. <laughs> if I'm that woman, I am always in a spiritual battle. It, it's just that most of the time I don't see it. So how do I need to see those, those big things that seem to be against me? Well, there's two things in this vision that help me see how I can see all the bad stuff. It helps me see why a lot of bad stuff happens when I choose to follow Jesus. Sometimes we're surprised about that, but Jesus said, don't be surprised. You're going to have trouble in this world. Where was Satan hurled? Out of heaven to earth. Jesus' entrance into the world, the place the dragon had claimed his own, stirs him up. He can't defeat Jesus, so he goes after you and me. No, God is not mad at you. God is not ignoring you. Yes, I am in a spiritual battle, but in the real picture, the big picture, number one, I can see that every, every attack from the evil one is simply the death throes of a defeated and dying dragon. It's the tail of the dragon flailing wildly as he dies. Do I really want to allow the evil one to think he can win when he's already lost? Those are just the death throes of a dying dragon. Verse 2 says, She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So if I am also that woman, this is not just talking about Mary. It tells us that in some way, all hurt, all pain for those who have come into the life of the child are simply labor pains. They will not go on forever and enduring will be worth it. I've had the wonderful privilege as a pastor, as a friend, as a father of, of witnessing the after effects of labor pains, sometimes quite close to the experience. What I've seen is, is radiance, peace, Wonder, joy. I've never seen anger. And if you ask that tired and pained mother, was it worth it? As she looks into the eyes of that child, she will say, yes, it was worth it. And you know what? You know how I know they feel it's worth it? Because they choose. They choose to go through that pain again. Why? Because it's just temporary and it's worth it. Folks, the view from the throne room is that all evil in the world now, everything against me, is just the flailing tail of a dying dragon and its birth pains 
that come before the glory that I will be revealed to have publicly for the entire universe to see. Does that not put it into perspective? The, the vision doesn't just talk about people. It also talks about a place, the special place that God has prepared for us in this time, in, in the middle of the evil what is it that Jesus said when he was preparing his disciples for him being gone? He says in John chapter 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. A place for you. Here, the special place that John sees in Revelation 12 is not that place. Our problem is that we want our experience with Jesus today to be heaven on earth. We sometimes get little glimpses of that, but not that often, frankly. But, he has a special place for us with him while he is on his way. What is that place? Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where, where, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. If you know your story, your history, you will say, okay, I get it. God's people have always been taken into the wilderness. Jesus was taken into the wilderness. Jesus was taken to Egypt to be protected. Do we think that we will escape wilderness? No, we will not escape wilderness. The only question is how we will see wilderness. Most of us spend our time trying to get out of wilderness. We try to create experiences and engineer environments that will make us feel like we're not in the wilderness. And we are missing out on what wilderness is all about. In God's eyes, wilderness is a place of protection, a place of security, a place of getting away from all of the distractions and finding in the wilderness a place where he wants to meet you. So how are you seeing your wilderness? Do you see it as a place to get out of or a place to get together with God? Jesus is in your wilderness. And it's in your wilderness where he wants to take care of you, nurture you, and strengthen you. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to a male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. What's your wilderness? Are you fighting it? Or are you finding Jesus there? You'll find him when you stop fighting. And what does Jesus prepare for us in the wilderness? He prepares us, or, or how does he prepare us? What does he prepare us for? He, he prepares us to fight well in this cosmic battle while he is on his way. As this vision describes how, how we are to see the dragon, it brings out the only three big plays the dragon has in his game plan. Only three. While Jesus is on his way, the dragon knows, verse 12, that his time is short. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. And so he doubles down. On the only three plays in his game plan. We know these plays. Because these plays are his three names. He is the accuser of the brothers. He is the deceiver of the world. And he is the destroyer 
the dragon. But, but this passage not only tells us his place, it gives us the strategy to defeat each of these only three desperate plays he has. And in this vision, we have one great verse that gives us God's game plan for us to defeat those three strategies. Look at verses 12 and 13. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accused them before God day and night has been hurled down, but they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The dragon has been thrown to earth. He is trying to make us feel defeated, but it says they overcame him. They won. Remember what God says to the churches in chapters 2 and 3? To those who overcome him are given the prize. Here in this vision, we see that it's not a question of whether we overcome. It sees us as being those who will overcome. How? They they triumphed him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Really quickly, how can I live as if Satan's already been defeated? Number one, he is the accuser of the brothers, those who follow Jesus. Do you, do you ever feel like God is against you? Like, you? like you are not that glorious woman? Some of us feel that that might be a sign we are not a follower of Jesus, that we can never be good enough for Jesus. Folks, that is not God speaking to you. That's the lie, the accusation of the evil one. The evil one is using the desert God has pulled you into to see it as God thinking you are no good. The dragon is right. We have sinned. We are sinners. But that's where he wants to leave us. He is also wrong. That is not the whole story. There is a child who has become the savior of the world and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. The forgiveness, the status in Jesus that we have through that forgiveness deals with the accuser. As Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation, no accusation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the dragon has been thrown out of heaven, we no longer have an accuser in heaven. We have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous one, as John says in, chapter, in 1 John chapter 2. He is the deceiver. That's what the word Satan refers to in, in verse 9. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Satan, opposing by deceiving his original strategy. You know, it, it's often been said that he uses these two strategies of accusation and deception in tandem, like, like a one-two punch. He sits like a birdie on one shoulder, whispering in, in one ear his deceptions. Ah, it's no big deal. Do what you feel. God won't care. You know better. That, that's, that's not you. That's not the real. Just do it. God doesn't care about you. God wouldn't want you to feel bad. He'd want you to feel good, to go with your feelings. All kinds of ways he, he tries to deceive us, deceive us. And then, then, when we succumb, he jumps to the other shoulder and whispers, beaks in that other ear. See, 
You are no good. You'll never be good enough. You just always blow it, right? How do you protect yourself from being deceived? They overcame him by the word of their testimony. They overcame him by making this word their story, by living in this word, the truth, the truth about Jesus, the truth from Jesus will set you free. It's why Dave last week challenged us, get to know, get to live in God's word. There is only one word that is truth. This, folks, is the official version of your story. You got to know it. You got to remind yourself, you got to grow in it. You need to counter the deception of the evil one with the word that has become your testimony. As Paul says in, in, in Roman or in um, 1 Corinthians or 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking and correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, so that the, the woman may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He is the accuser. He is the deceiver, and he is the destroyer. It is his last ditch, final push effort. How do you defeat the one who has the power to destroy only your body, as Jesus says? He does. He does have that power. Listen to this. Those who overcame did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What is it we fear? We fear that we'll have to die in some way. We'll have to die to something in some way. We'll have to give up, let it go, die to it. But what if we've already died? If we've already died, we have nothing to fear. I love the way Daryl Johnson puts it. Death is not the last word. It's only the second to last word. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. The worst thing that can happen to me is to turn my back on the life that is in Jesus. Dr. Joseph Tan was a, a Christian leader and teacher in Romania during the dictatorship of President Ceausescu. He wrote a paper on the principles of God's way of life and and he gave a copy to the president, not afraid. And yet he was immediately arrested and threatened with death if he did not rescind what he had just written. We are told that Dr. Tan just smiled and he lovingly explained to his captors why he was not afraid of death. And his calm, joyful, unafraid, loving presence actually won the admiration of his captors. And one of the things he said was, you only have the power to kill me if God grants it to you. But I have the power to die. And, and if you kill me, you will sprinkle my tapes with blood and people will listen to them because they know I gave my life for what I teach. And somewhere probably in his teaching, he added what Paul says in the book of Colossians chapter 3. The truth is, I have already died. And my life is now, right, what, last week we saw it, hidden with Christ in God. You may take my earthly life, but you can't take my real life because I have already died. And I've risen with Christ and God. But, but that's not true in just the ultimate sense. The reason we are so angry, so defeated, so worried is because we think something is being taken 
we afraid that something will be taken from us that we'll have to die to. So what if we've already given those things up? Died to them. It's no big deal. We do not value those things that we think of as our life, even to the point of death, because we've already died to them. So, is there anything you're hanging on to too tightly that you need to let go of, that you need to die to? How do I wait well? Knowing he's on his way, hostaged by hope. Number one, accepting how he sees me. I am that woman in his eyes. In him I am a winner. And it's going to come out when he comes. Number two, working with Jesus as he equips me to fight, to win. I have all of the tools I need to defeat the very few tools of the evil one, to be the one who is an overcomer. Are you waiting well? Are you hostaged by hope?